You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership, and so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our families, our colleagues, and our teams better. Our great coach on this episode is Gareth Taylor. Gareth played as a professional footballer for 18 seasons, playing for Bristol Rovers, Crystal Palace, Manchester City, Burnley and Nottingham Forest, among other teams. He retired in 2011 and started coaching youth teams at Manchester City. After eight years in the City Academy, he was appointed head coach of the women's team and led them to a FA Cup title in 2020 and the League Cup title in 2022. Some of the key highlights of this interview for me were how he defines his purpose on this planet as helping people, and how understanding this has helped him focus his energies and life. The importance of their review process, which they complete using a multidisciplinary team in order to drive improved performance on the pitch. And the importance of risk-taking in the culture at Man City, and how he goes about empowering people to do this. And just before we go to the interview, if you enjoy listening to the podcast and would like to learn more, you can head over to our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. 
There, you will find more video and podcast content taken from the 150 plus interviews we have done with some of the world's great coaches. You'll also find our insight database where we have snipped out insights from the videos of our interviews on leadership topics like culture, communication, and conflict. You can search through by keyword, sport or coach, download and share them. We'll be adding to it regularly as we interview more great coaches from around the world. We also have a newsletter that features information on our latest podcasts, leadership insights from our guests, recommendations they have on books, articles and other media, as well as information on how you can engage with other people who listen to the podcast in our live events. And now, please enjoy our interview with Gareth Taylor. You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Gareth Taylor, hello. Good evening, my time. Good morning, your time. And welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Thank you, Paul. Great to be here. Thanks for making the time. I know you're uh, you're back at work. It's uh, not, not, not much of a summer holiday for you uh, football coaches, so I do appreciate you carving out a little bit of time for me. No problem at all. Gareth, could I start by just name-checking a couple of great coaches that you've worked with? There's Nick Cushing and, of course, there's uh, the guy that works uh, just one pitch over from you, as we were talking about. There's Pep Guardiola. But you've also coached against Emma Hay. So you've seen some pretty good coaches up close. And I'm just wondering, from this experience, what do you think it is that separates the great coaches? What is it they do differently? I think when you think of those three people you've just mentioned, especially, I would probably look towards more of the conditions. So I think, you know, Nick is someone I work really close with. I used to line manage him. He was in the academy as a coach and younger than me slightly. So I kind of took him under my wing a little bit because part of my brief as under 16 coach was also to manage or line manage all of the coaches from 16s down to 12s in that youth development phase. We spent a lot of time with Nick and uh, eventually when he got the opportunity to become head coach of the women's, I mean, you have to remember now that the women's setup was a real kind of base level. And he spoke to me about doing it. Uh, I said, your profile is going to go up incredibly you know, highly straight away because I can only see it growing and growing, which is, has been the case. And yeah, I think, you know, going back to the conditions part of it would be, I'm a, I'm a big person on bigger picture kind of vision. I think if you can trust in the people that you're working with, that this is the right coach, the conditions around them are great. You have the right plan. Then you need a bit of time. And I'm sure, I'm sure pretty most coaches in high-profile jobs will tell you that you don't get that these days. But I think when you look at all of those guys, you know, Emma especially, been there for 10 years at Chelsea, had real good success. Nick did six years, obviously, in, in the women's game with City, had really good success. And the same for, same for Pep. Um, having not won a trophy in his first season, Pep's gone on to do incredible things in, in the English game, and not just won trophies, but completely change the game in, in terms of how us potential uh, not so high in stature coaches really view the game and, and how we how we want to do things ourselves you know so I think there's real factors around 
why why these people you see glimpses sometimes you'll see a glimpse of a coach but not for long enough that they don't probably get that time that they probably deserve um so i think it's you know those guys have obviously had to gain a lot of trust from their owners gain a lot of trust from their superiors in that regardless of results we're moving in the right direction here Gareth, you played till you're in your late 30s you've now had 15 years at the city group but I'm wondering, was there a person or event that sort of ignited this passion in you to to coach, to sort of lead people? Well, I think when you're a, when you're a player, a former player who's been in the game for a long time and, uh, you know, once I got to the other side of 30, I mean, I was fortunate enough to nearly go to 40. I was 38 when I was still playing, player coach at Wrexham under Dean Saunders. And that's where I really got the bug. And he was great in giving me the opportunity not just to be a player, but also to take the reserves, the second team. And you know, I was literally having to stand up in front of my my teammates and give them instruction, try to get them on board, you know, be harsh on them at times where I felt we needed to be better. And it was priceless. That that kind of experience was priceless for me at a relatively young age. Um because no one can prepare you for that. And what you try to use as well is high levels of empathy rather than going after players. I think it was, guys, listen, I've been there. I've sat and I'm still I'm still there in, in certain respects, although my playing days were pretty much behind me. So I think there's so many people, so many coaches, good and bad, that have really made an impression on me. And I think when you come to the end of your playing career, you know, you get different brackets of sports people who either have made so much money that they have, you can go and play golf every day, <laughs> which would be nice. And then there's others that have kind of made a decent amount of money where they are able to probably take a couple of years out of the game and then start to come back into it. And then there was people like myself who did did okay out of the game, but also just needed that space. I didn't want that space in my life where I didn't have anything to get up a bed for every morning. I think that's really important for me. And I, and I suppose coaching was the nearest fix I could get to being a footballer. Completely different kind of feelings and responsibilities. And I was really fortunate that I came straight out of playing literally one week and into coaching the next. Uh, I was really fortunate in that space because I think it's really tough for elite sports people to come out of one thing and retire and have something and a purpose to get out of bed in, in the morning for. I think that's really important. I'm intrigued to hear a little bit more about uh, the joining process at Citigroup. It is Manchester City. It's one of the world's great sporting organisations. I've, I've visited there myself and I've experienced it firsthand. And when you joined and when other new people joined, are there rituals or processes that that, that happen to welcome people into the group? Well, I think when I first came back to the club as a coach in 2011, it was a different place. It wasn't the, the fantastic facility that you see now. We we came out of a place at Platt Lane, which was right next to Main Road, our old football stadium and the stadium that I played in when I played for City. And, you know, that was a great environment to, to come into. You know, it was nowhere near the machine that it is now. It was a lot smaller environment. Uh, you know, there were probably, if you were fortunate, there were probably coaches who were crossing over two or three age groups whereas now every age group has a head coach and an assistant coach so you can just imagine how big and 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 the support that's there now for for the players and 
and staff is is a, it's a different world. But that environment I went into was fantastic, you know, because you had real majority of the of that period were ex players, ex players at various ages who were fantastic to have discussion with, fantastic to go out and watch and observe and and see how they coached in the training session and what their brief was and what they were looking for before the training session, post-training recession, did it go the right way they wanted it to? So that was priceless, really, being involved in that environment at the time. And then, obviously, I was involved in the move across to to CFA, uh, where, again, it was still, you know, the facilities there are fantastic for players, for, for, for staff. And, again, just seeing how the club has grown in purchasing clubs all around the world uh, and seeing people's journeys, really, you know, um, players who've moved to various clubs within the group and also staff that have moved to various clubs within the group. There seems to be a, a deep level of loyalty, actually, in, in the club, which I think is unusual um, in professional sports and, and actually p- potentially with any kind of professional organisation. Is, is that a fair comment? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, they really do know like, uh, to look after people. I mean, not just someone like myself, who was a former player of the club. So, you know, you always have a strong affiliation, but I played for a number of clubs and I feel very fortunate to have been able to spend 15 years of my life at this club and to see the club now and the way that it operates and the way that it not just wants to move forward and be the very best, which is doing really well at the moment, but it also has a nod to the past. And I think they really look after former players. They really look after uh, former employees. I think, um, you know, just to give you an idea, when when we went to the Champions League recently in Istanbul, it was it was incredible the amount of staff and planes that were provided for staff to be there and have that moment, which you can imagine, you know, flying to Turkey, into Istanbul, trying to create all of the hotels, the actual operation and planning to do that for all of the support staff was incredible. I've never seen anything like it. And I actually was really proud when I turned up at the airport that morning before we departed. And I was like, wow, this club is incredible in working in this way. They really are. Gareth, when you were appointed into your role as head coach of the women's team, you said the ingredients for success are belief, hard work, and a strong team ethic. I want to come back to belief, but I'd like to start at strong team ethic. And I'd like to to ask you, what in your mind, through your approach to coaching, what are the building blocks of a strong team ethic? Well, I think it's trust. Trust is a big one, you know, and and you're working within a team where, particularly in the women's game, what I've noticed, apart from my first season, which was the probably just we were right in lockdown where it, felt that was the only proper preseason that I've had in three seasons. The rest the rest of the time has been players coming back off the back of Euros, Olympics, World Cups, which we're coming into now. So your time is really, really tight in preparation. And, you know, the importance of trying to get your recruitment right so that you're relatively working with the same group of players is something that's been a challenge for us as well. So I would certainly say that the, the building blocks are high levels of trust in what you do I think you know respect is huge humility we 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 really at the club one of the biggest things that I 
would like to leave would be our identity and the way that we do things and the way that we play. I think it's what people talk about quite a lot when you when you look at City and regardless of the team that you're discussing, whether it be an academy team, whether it be the men's first team, whether it be the women's, would be our identity and the way that we play. And, you know, it it needs a high level of, of risk, high level of like real technical excellence, tactical understanding, you know, all the physical attributes that go with it. And I would also say the, the mentality side is huge as well because, you know, you're not always going to get it right. And what are you going to be like on a bad day? What are you going to be like when things don't go well for you? And, you know, we'll probably touch on it a little bit more further down the conversation around winning and losing, or I call it winning and learning. I think it's really important that the trust part and getting players to buy into what you're trying to do is the biggest challenge for a coach. It really is. And I think I've not always got that right, if I'm honest. I think... um, Particularly when I think about when I first started as a coach, I was very much probably a version of those coaches that I that I had, where it was very much arm's length. You couldn't really, you know, very rare that a coach or or a manager of the team would ask you about anything personal about yourself as a family. You know, um, how are the kids? How are the babies? You know, that type of stuff. It was very very rare. It was always kind of like this respect of head coach or manager and player. And it was very much keep them there at arm's length, make sure that they don't overstep the mark, you don't overstep the mark, and they know who's boss. Whereas I think it's a different world these days. I think it really is in terms of getting to know people, trusting people, um, making them feel that they've got your back, I think is a massive one. And so my my initial probably type of, of coaching from when I first started and first probably took that under-16 role with young players as well, don't forget. These are really young players, impressionable players who are looking up to you to be the key holder. I think I've really changed in that respect of getting to know people a lot more, trying to find out what makes them tick. I mean, we have so much resource there to be able to dip into that. And I think it's one of the biggest things that you can use because we're here to help. Ultimately, that's what we're here to do. We're like teachers and we're here to help and we're here to get the very best out of players and that's not the easiest thing to do. You know, you never know what's going on behind the scenes. And our job at times, respectfully, is to try and find out that, to get a bit of a better understanding, to allow us to move forward and, and see the very best from the player. How do you find that line? How do you said it was, you have to do it respectfully. How do you know when you're not doing it respectfully? How do you calibrate to ensure you're engaging in a way that's, I guess, authentic and is going to make an impact? Well, I think, I think that's due to the, to the interaction you have with a player. I think all, all players and all people are, are different. You know, I think it's mm-hmm. probably some of coaches' failings and certainly mine would have been that you, you tend to almost like bracket players. You put them into like a pool. Well, these are, these probably learn in this way. These probably learn in that way. These are whatever, you know, label you wanted to put on them. And listen, don't get me wrong. There are some real crossovers with people and with with certainly professional footballers um, where you see real trends highlighted in their personality. But you just really have to understand that everyone is is different. One thing I will say is, and where that crossover really seems to align is, they all need to know 
at times what you think of them and they want to hear good stuff you know and I think going back to that autocratic probably type of head coach or manager that I had when I was a player it's very difficult to be like that these days and I don't think it really gets anything other than maybe short-term spikes I think you know in the long run what you want to try and do is empower a player and and then to be safe in the knowledge that they can be their very best version of themselves and I think that's what we try to create at the club and we're really clear on how we want to play and how we want to do things in possession out of possession but there's a real freedom within the structure there is a structure there's no doubt about that you know because we we feel that the identity and the way we want to do things is really important and really important for us to also win. It's not just to play beautiful football that doesn't produce winning results, but there's a real freedom within the structure of for players to be the very best of themselves. And I always feel the more that you can empower players, which is really, really difficult to do, but the more you can empower the players, that's when the magic happens. Earlier you used the term high-level risk, and it, it's an interesting one. So why, what's the connection between high-level risk-taking and a strong team uh, work ethic, strong team ethic, rather? High-level risk probably lends itself more to the way we play. So, for instance, you know, we're, we're very clear with the players on how we play from, from the back to the front, certainly in possession. I think... Uh, I would say also high-level risk comes down to the way we we act when we don't have the ball as well because we really want to press from the front. And sometimes you can get picked off. So it is a risk within that, that all of a sudden now you've got the opposition team are coming at your goal. But going back to the in-possession stuff, which is, which is where you do really see a clear identity in the way that we play, is if we're trying to find the spare player, because our methodology is really high in in numerical supremacy so creating overloads how do we create overloads and we have specialists in the team who are able to beat opponents in 1v1 we need that and there's no doubt that that's really important within the game but the numerical supremacy is very hard to defend against for the opposition so it's how do we find the spare player sometimes when the opposition really show an animation of player for player then straight away the goalkeeper is the spare player how do we commit or provoke the opposition now to jump onto the goalkeeper so that now the person that they've jumped from is the spare player? And this is high, you know, this is high level risk. It, it really demands that you are technically astute, your tactical understanding is really there because we've identified who the spare player is. And then how you find them is how you find them. All we try to do is give you the options on the training pitch. You might find them this way or this way by using a player that's already marked and under pressure. So then it becomes down to the small detail of the pass and all of these things are really important. So when we talk about risk, these are the things we talk about, which happens more on pitch and we train it and we review it and we see things that we've done really well, see see things that we've done could potentially do better. But certainly the players having a real high level of understanding of what we're trying to achieve, I think is the key. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Could I talk to you now about one of the other three elements you discussed when you were appointed, and that's self-belief. And I'm keen to sort of talk about you had a, a long history as a professional transitioned into coaching very quickly. So you've seen both sides of the of the the pitch. You've seen it from from the box and on the pitch. And I'm I'm just intrigued, Gareth. What have you learnt about working with an athlete's self-belief now that you've uh, spent 15 years uh, in management? Again, I feel really fortunate that I'm living in this period as a coach where we're really interested in how we give self-belief to uh, to athletes and you know, that was something that when we look back to the past, or certainly when I look back to my playing career, I feel that I showed at times that even when I was in a place where, you know, things weren't going well, I wasn't scoring goals, I wasn't performing well, that I had real strong levels of resolve to fight back. You know, sometimes I would probably go solo that you never thought I was coming back, but I always showed real good resilience and character to, to fight back. So I, I knew that was within me, but I also feel, and I think most people do this when they look back on their careers is that there is sometimes a little bit of regret over not backing myself a little bit more, um, not using the small resource that was available. I think, you know, certainly by talking about your fears is, is huge. To be able to do that, just to basically offload and, and get a, a different aspect from someone else who's away from it. Because I think then you actually realise there's not too much to be concerned about. You know, we play the game because we love the game. I always wanted to be a professional footballer because I had a ball in my hand from the minute I could walk. And, you know, my heroes were were on the world stage. And I never thought I would make it as a professional footballer. But when I got there, I felt that... I could have got more out of myself. And now certainly since I've transitioned over and, and a lot of that was probably down to the mentality side because I think the, the talent was there. I think I could have squeezed more out of what I did. And it wasn't the case of not working hard. I think it was more a case of believing in myself a little bit more. Now I've transitioned over into a coach and get into more of a, a middle-aged place. I've kind of looked at it and thought, well, I'm not going to do that now as a coach. And that's not to say I'm going to stand up and preach to everyone that I'm this I'm that. I'm not. I'm a very humble person. But deep down, there's a real steely resolve in myself that I'm not going to doubt myself. 
like I maybe did at times when I was a player. And it's normal to do that. I'm not saying that that never comes into my psyche at all. I think it's, uh, it's just how you deal with it, how you draw perspective, how you actually start to pick out the positives that you can see in yourself rather than always looking at the negative. And I think we've, we always do that with players or even people because I use the term players a lot, but at the end of the day, these, these guys are people. We're dealing with staff on, you know, a high number of staff every single day. We're dealing with a high number of players, people every single day. And most of the time, they want to know what they're doing well, not what they're not doing well. You know, we're very good as a society of doing that, especially in this era that we live in. I would hate to have played as a player with all of this social media that goes on now because it's, it's just too easy to get lost in that. So I think it's taking a step back and certainly as a coach, actually making sure that my people know that firstly, they're very good at what they do. And they might not always show that all of the time, but it's there. And it's just tilting the perspective a bit more to say, right, you can do this. I know you can. You've done it before. And this is where we see you at your best. So I think that's really key. And it's been a big learning for myself. And and people say to me, oh, you'd be a bit, you're being a bit tough on yourself because, you know, you had a good career. And I said, yeah, I had a good career. But, you know, there were times where the doubt came in and I could have definitely used some techniques that could have helped me a little bit more within that. And what I tend to do now is just to make sure that when I'm, whenever I'm having those moments, I make sure I've got the right people around me and not people who are just going to tell me what I want to hear. But people who are there and who are supporting and, and, and are certainly aware of the situation. And, you know, when you do that, it, it's great. It's such a such a good feeling when you come out of it the other side. We actually go, well, come on. This isn't the worst situation in the world. And that happens with the results-based business that we live in. You know, you can get too carried away with winning and you certainly can get too carried away when you lose, you know, it's a real opportunity to learn when you lose. And that's hard to do every single occasion, but the more you can do it, I think it's, uh, it's a great place to be in. And then, and then listening to a lot of the guys that I've heard speak on here and, and, you know, I, I read a lot of self-help books is, you know, the winning or the losing is not the be all and end all. It's about how you do things. And that's how you want to be remembered is like, well, this guy really helped me. And, you know, I love the football that we play. Those types of things, I think, are way more important than trophies. I was fortunate enough to win trophies in each of my first two seasons. And all that does really is, I always say, is quill the noise. But really what you want to do is is really have an effect on a person. And when you hear of a player that makes it onto the top level stage and name checks you, so to speak, because there's so many people that make an impression on that person now with all of the staff and resource that, that is there in the game. That's a magical feeling when you hear that. And that's what makes it all worthwhile. Bit of a long-winded No, goodbye. it's a fantastic answer. I normally finish these interviews with asking about legacy, but I think you've just answered it then. But I'm not going to let you off the hook. We are going to come back to it later on. I... Gareth, it's fascinating listening to you. There's there's empathy, there's trust, there's humility, respect. I'm wondering if it's not if it's if it's uh, if it's even possible. How do you pull these strands together to define the philosophy that that shapes your leadership style? Well, I think I was fortunate that when I came to the club, or certainly moved into this role, I should say, because I, I 
transferred out of the academy into the women's game was that there were some key people uh, with some real good building blocks around me to allow us to really uh, gauge whether we were moving forward or not, or I should say probably gauging whether we were successful or not. So, you know, there's different types of models that you can use in the modern game. Um, and I suppose for someone who's come from uh, a playing background where there was very little video uh, evidence, you know, has gone back to the old JVC tapes. The, you know, the the data and everything else now, which is in the game, is is amazing. And I think what that does is it allows you to to see where you're strong and perhaps see where you maybe need to improve. So, you know, whether that's a what it takes to win model, which I think is you know something that I probably would have turned my nose up at ten years ago, whereas it's something that we use now, which is really helpful. I think it allows us to to see what we've done really well, to see where we potentially need to improve. And again, I, very much process driven. I think when you are any type of sportsman, I tend to speak to a lot of ex-players or, or ex-sports people who are very obsessive in the way they are around the house. I mean, I think what football's done for me is, is created almost like a, this OCD, you know, I'm very kind of set within my day and what it looks like, you know, whether that's exercise, whether that is, you know, uh, planning the training sessions, you know, we really do plan, do and review in the way we work. And I think what that does is it really, if you were just planning all of the time or if you were just doing, I think it's a problem. I think the review process is amazing. Certainly is for me, you know, where we've been successful in the game, and sometimes the problem when you are successful in the game, certainly within the result, you can paper over the cracks. And you have to be really careful with that. The learning or the losing, as some people might call it, is is something that's never nice. Never nice. But I think what it does allow you to do in those moments is you really break down the, the parts of the game where this is probably where we weren't successful and this is probably where we lost the game. And I think... That plan do review process is is amazing for us, and we have a high high level of data that's fed back to us during the week. We we very much use the MDT process, multidisciplinary team process, where we share a lot. So the communication levels at our place are, are really really good. I think you know most organisations will tell you that the first thing that probably is a complaint is communication. I'm not saying that ours is the best, but it's really high up there. I like to share what I'm thinking. I like to share information. There's some information that you can't share, but I think what we do with that MDT process is it just really allows us to see what we've done well. We get a lot of data that comes back from the game. Um, and what we do is we've really set ourselves high challenges because we know how hard it is to win this league. We have 22 games in a season, 12 teams. My first season, we only lost one game to Chelsea and we lost the league by two points. So, you know, it just goes to show you that the margins are so tight. And I think what those systems allow us to do is to really see where we are. And sometimes it makes you feel at times as well where you don't feel you're in a good moment. You actually look at the data and it suggests that, you know what, apart from these two areas, we're doing really well. And that's also a really good reference to use for the players as well, to be able to show them without overloading them too much with data to show them and say, guys, listen, we are close here. We're really close. If we can improve in these areas, sometimes when you're 
on the gerbil wheel, as I call it, you really don't get a chance to review. And that can be quite dangerous. You really need time or two. You need to be able to create create time in a, such a busy calendar to be able to block out a time to go, right, okay, this training session we did today, let's have a look at it on the on the video again. Are we happy with it? And we might be happy with it. But where could it be better? Did the players Were the players challenged? Were the players really pushed to a physical level that we needed them to hit on that particular day? I think that review process is so, so important. And the more people you can engage with in that, I think that's great. Gareth, could I ask you about obsession? Because one of the things I've noticed through these interviews is if I compare if I compare the, the, the coaches I've spoken to with my life in the corporate world, one of the things that differentiates the two leadership approaches, I think, is obsession. And I and I say this with all respect, but I think there's this higher level of obsession with sporting coaches. And I think it doesn't necessarily exist to the same level in the corporate world. And I think this obsession can potentially be quite debilitating if it's left unchecked. How do you go mm-hmm. about dealing with it? How do you manage that? I think it's the hardest thing probably to manage. And you're right. You know, you hear coaches talking about how obsessed they are. You're hearing that, you know, most football coaches, probably every 32 minutes, I think the survey showed that, they're thinking about something to do with their role or football. And I looked at that and thought, well, I'll be happy with 32 minutes. I think mine is less. I am obsessed with the game. I really am. And when I say obsessed with the game, I'll probably change that and say, I'm obsessed with helping. I think I've probably come to a stage in my life where, you know, I feel that I understand what my purpose is on on this planet and that's to help people. And that can come in various forms. You know, there's no point I'm trying to help the players, but I'm not trying to help the staff that we work with. Uh, You need to be able to try and help anyone you come across. And certainly the people that you see that really engage, that show that same passion that you have. I think that is, that's where the magic happens. I feel like I'm helping, but also, and going back to my playing career, I think has programmed also OCD and a lot of things because it was just repetition. It was such repetition. It was about respect. It was about discipline. I mean, certainly going back to my YTS days or apprenticeship days, whatever you want to call it, it's completely different now for the young players. You know, they don't have to do any jobs. They don't have to do any kind of chores. Mm -hmm. They're treated like royalty almost. I'm not sure that that's the right thing because that education I had from 16 to 18 was incredible about discipline, respect, hard work. Um, and it was a repetitive nature and throughout my career, training, sleeping, recovering, meeting, just went in a cycle like that. And again, that probably goes back to that point I made around purpose. What I find fascinating about your career, Gareth, is you played for many teams. A lot of them were small teams. Some of them were big teams. I mean, you finished at Wrexham, which of course been in the, the, the news lately because of their great, great success. But you're now at this, this powerhouse of a club but what have you learned about the things that underdogs need to do to succeed because the great thing about uh, soccer as we call it in this part of the world of course is that tournaments mean that small teams can suddenly find themselves getting to the final or the pointy end of large competitions so I'm really interested in in your views on underdogs and what they need to do to be successful I think 
the importance of the underdog probably arises more in cup competitions, in one-off games. I think that's where you really see, you know, two teams that come together. One team is heavily backed as the favourite. One is the clear underdog. In the league format, it's probably a little bit less. It's on lesser a lesser level. Many of the games that we go into, favourite to win, and that brings that brings different pressures. But I equally like that as much as also being the underdog. You know, being an underdog is a is a relaxing place to be, and I think that's why it happens where you see these results where you know a team that should probably nowhere near beat the opposition and will probably lose nine times out of ten if they were to play would just somehow manage to go out and put on a performance whilst also expecting that the opposition team that is the one that's expected to win that's just dropping the levels and that comes probably a little bit from complacency or fear because playing with fear is never a place you want to be in and that's again something that we try to allow our players to go out onto the pitch with. There's no fear. You know, there's no blame here. I take all of the hit. I take all of the pressure off you. I'm asking you to play in a certain way. This is what I require from you. And some days we're going to do it well, other than it. And there's no finger pointing at all. Gareth, it's been fantastic to talk to you tonight. No fear, belief, risk-taking, empathy. I feel like uh, I feel like we're just scratching the surface, but I have thoroughly enjoyed listening to you and, and learning about you for tonight's interview, and I wish you all the best for the season ahead. And I've got my fingers crossed that your, your players that you've got over here in Australia for the World Cup do really well, but that Australia win. <laughs> I think they have a chance. I'm not just saying that to make you feel better. <laughs> Thanks, Gareth. I appreciate your time tonight. Hi, everyone. You have been listening to the great coach, Gareth Taylor. I hope you got a lot out of Gareth's authentic and honest style and found a few ideas that you can bring to your own dinner table, locker room or boardroom table for discussion. When I listened back, the other key highlights for me were Gareth's view that getting people to buy into what you are doing is the biggest challenge as a coach. How the building blocks of a strong team ethic start with trust. How his early experiences as a coach taught him about the importance of empathy and how underdogs are able to outperform more fancied opponents by playing without fear. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Talking Automotive, who after listening to our Ashes special with John Buchanan said, listening to John share his extensive leadership experience is always insightful. Thanks, Talking Automotive. We love the interaction with the people around the world who listen And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And if they're positive ones, then please let your friends know too. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.